This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taya Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Christopher Pinard, author of Celtic Mythology for Kids, Tales of Selkies, Giants, and the Sea. Chris's interests in folklore and mythology began at a very young age, when his mother first read the stories of the Mabinogian, Eddas, the Irish mythological cycle, and various collections of folk tales. Over the years, his passion for the subject matter deepened, which resulted in his authorship of articles online and in magazines. His deep interest in folkways is buttressed with an educational background in psychology and history. In our conversation, we cover Chris's early awakening to the world of mythology, his personal synthesis of a pagan practice based on the Norse and Celtic traditions and deities, and the transformative power of allegories found in traditional tales. Chris Pinard, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, and we will begin by asking you the question we start off all first-time guests with, which is to invite you to cast your uh, mind back in memory to childhood and youth and invite you having uh, uh, taken your mem- your uh, mind back to that those places um, to ask you to reflect on any particular experiences um, during those periods in your life that would act as harbingers in retrospect that is that indicated the direction that your work would take, the work that we'll be talking about later in this uh, conversation. So uh, any such um, memories, moments that you can uh, talk about? Absolutely. Uh, One in particular was back when I was extremely young, all the way until literally the day that I turned four. I would wake up screaming every night. My mother would come down and, you know, console me, but I would have dreams. And I remember the dream to this day. It was a repeating dream every night. Mm -hmm. And just for some reason, when I turned four, it just kind of stopped. But the dream is very vivid. And pretty much it started out where I was in a cave, or, you know, some sort of uh, cavern, subterranean area. And I could feel myself being pushed forward. And I couldn't necessarily see the hands, but I knew that they were there. And as I was going further and further into this cavern area, I could see that there was a light up ahead, um, very distant, very faint. But as I continued being pushed forward, I could start to see the hands. And the hands were in various states of uh, decomposition. Hmm. So it it was almost as if they were zombies, quote unquote, but I knew that they weren't. 
um, just for some reason in my mind, I, I had a, a clear idea of, of what they were and they were human. You know, they had consciousness. I knew that they weren't necessarily going to hurt me. So I wasn't afraid of them per se. Hmm. But then as I got to the very front of that cavern, right up there at the very front was this very normal, very just average looking guy, very well dressed. Um, but in my mind at the time, because the only frame of reference that I had to anything that wasn't Christian was the devil. And so in my mind at the time, I thought, oh gosh, this is the devil. And I would wake up screaming right when I got to the front. Now in later years, coming back to that dream, I recognized that wasn't what that was. And I had dreams about that same situation later on. And it would have been my, my spirit guide, essentially, uh, one, one might say, or um, one's uh, working partner, spiritual working partner as such, uh, protective entity. And, you know, later in life, yes, I, I had to reframe it to what I knew then. But as a child, the only way that I had to process that was through that Christian lens because I was raised Catholic and that's all that I had to kind of put it into. But yeah, that was very, very interesting as a child. It was very, one might say that it was somewhat traumatic at the time, but it, in retrospect, it was a, a very, it's a spiritual experience, you know, coming into contact with one's, uh, one's guide or one's helper as such. Got it. So did that uh, persist for you, like the memory of that uh, uh, as you were growing older, like a mystery that had to be solved? It was. I, I definitely came back to it many, many times through my childhood. And, you know, I didn't necessarily, like, like I said, have that dream again after I was four. It just kind of dissipated at that point in time. But in my mind, I would come back to it. And I would say in my latter teen years is when it started really kind of coming into prominence and I was starting to put the pieces together where that fit in spiritually speaking for me. And within my college years, I definitely delved into many different spiritual traditions and whether that be of the East with Buddhism and Hinduism and finally returning to sort of the Western European pagan traditions of either uh, Celtic polytheism or uh, Norse polytheism, both. I, I had great interest in those. And that's kind of where my, my interest lay after that period of time. It just sort of, sort of stayed there. Well, this is interesting. Uh, so um, I don't know how... Uh, how uh um strong your uh dose of catholicism was i'm uh, of course reflecting on my own catholic upbringing and i went to a for six years i went to a, a, a catholic primary school was a an altar boy sang in the choir was going to sing in a uh in a production college production you know in the in the lead role that's all that sort of thing um and um and i'm wondering how that catholic background that you describe which 
led to this interpretation in youth of a very um, of a particular way to relate to this dream that now looking back you understand very differently than you did at the time absolutely I, I'm, I'm wondering how that transition took place over the years as as you grew up from four to your late teens as you said when you went to college well, it's interesting because I, I did go through the entire process uh, all the way up until confirmation and much like yourself, an altar boy. And, uh, you know, it was definitely part of my life. I would say more so for my parents, um, although confirmation is supposed to be something that you do for yourself. Mm-hmm. It was something I completed for my parents' sake. I already knew by that point in time that I wasn't necessarily uh, Catholic anymore. Ah, interesting. How did how did that emerge for you, or how did that how did that um, realization uh, that you were doing this for for your parents and, start, and not for yourself? That I guess it would have started in middle school. Um, I, I always had an interest in the weird, <laughs> anything that was kind of off the wall or different uh, mysteries. Uh, if you remember unsolved mysteries back in the day, that was like my favorite TV show growing up. Um, so I, I always had an interest in different spiritualities and things of that nature. Um, so as time progressed, I would say in my middle school years and going into my high school years, I recognized that definitely there were some interesting things about Catholicism and I enjoyed the ceremony part of it. They're just wasn't anything theologically that I found gravitating towards it. Um, Mm -hmm. I I just, I I couldn't get behind it on that level of things. And so I just recognized, okay, well, you know, I recognize that I'm doing this for my folks. My, they, they wanted me to go through um, confirmation and I was like, okay, I'll do it for them. But I know my own thing is going to be different from that. Mm-hmm. And so it was just a stepping off point, really. You know, I, I completed it. They were happy. And, you know, I had no qualms about it. There wasn't anything wrong with it for me. Right. And then I just continued to kind of do my own thing. Hmm. Got it. So, so when you were in um, college and exploring different spiritual paths, uh, how did those show up for you? Where, did you do deep immersion or was it more just reading about and kind of looking for something that would uh, catch your heart? Uh, It was a little bit of both. So I grew up in Alaska, and a lot of people have an idea that Alaska is very much a monolith, that everyone up there is kind of the same, and that uh, they're very much Republican, and, you know, that kind of thing, and not not open and accepting. But in all actuality, there was a lot of diversity in the community that I grew up in. And so we had people up there who were Buddhists. We had people up there who were Hindu. Uh, There was a Hindu temple that I frequented when I was in high school and college years. Hmm. Um, So I had that at the ready. There was plenty of accessibility for me to go and see and do those things, which I love. Not everybody had that uh, available to them. So I'm very fortunate that I did. Um, so I suppose that just having it accessible was wonderful, but on top of that, uh, there were a few interesting circumstances that happened over the years. 
So when I was started getting interested in uh, Hinduism, in particular, the, the Vedic religion, um, I ended up going to an Indian restaurant that we had up there. And, you know, lovely people that owned the place. And it was the first time that I had actually gone in. And the food was great and so forth. I remember going in, they kind of gave me a funny look at first. And I just thought, oh, you know, they're just, I'm a new customer. So, but sat down, had my meal towards the end of it. They actually came up to me and they said, I know this will sound a little strange to you, but there's someone I feel you have to meet. And it turns out that their, um, their guru had been in town. And he said that there would be a young man that would be coming in that day. One of those very strange circumstances um, that he would be driving a certain truck and all these other things that lined up with me went in there and we had a, a great conversation after my meal. I went and met him. Um, very nice man. And he pretty much advised me that I know you're interested in Hinduism, which I was, but he said, it's not your path. And I, I was very grateful to him. You know, he definitely clarified things right off the bat saying, nope, this isn't for you. Um, he, he gave me some clarification on what he felt would be better suited for me. And he kind of led me down the path of uh, European paganism as such and returning to my own ancestral traditions. It, and so I'm, I'm very, very grateful for him for that fact. It's interesting. I, I've run across that consideration in, 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 in stories that some people tell and in, in particularly some, some esoteric literature that, of the, that for some people it's important for them to go back to their, you might say, the genetic path. Uh, I, I don't know if it's exactly genetic or, um, in a sense, spiritual, but there's a notion of lineage that seems to show up for some people and for other people not so much, because we have lots of examples of Westerners who become very involved in the Vedic path or the uh, Tibetan path or any number of other world traditions where that doesn't, that doesn't seem to be a recommendation or an issue. But then for some people, it's like, yeah, go, you have Norse background. You should, you should be looking at the, this, the vitality of this lineage. So how do you understand that now in terms of why, why you for that? Whereas there's, there's plenty of, uh, 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 Westerners, uh, you know, European descended Westerners who seem to find a, a vital home in Hinduism, for instance. I think part of it has to deal with the culture that one's raised in. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is the family unit culture. Uh, so for me, my grandmother, she was very much in touch with both her Scottish roots and her Norwegian roots. Um, mm -hmm. Her father was 100% Norwegian and her mother was relatively 100% uh, Scottish. So she was raised with those traditions and they were imparted upon me uh, growing up. And I definitely had that frame of reference of traditions. Like at Christmas time, there was the reference to the Yolnissa, um, which are kind of the little Christmas elves but it is a folkloric tradition among the Norwegian people. And 
for a lot of the different things that we had growing up, even things like recipes, just traditions that we had, family traditions, they were things that were passed down. Now, not every uh, American has those traditions that are passed down. There's a lot of people who have been divorced from their parent culture, wherever that comes from. And so I think for those individuals, it's maybe a lot easier to graft onto Vedic culture or Hinduism as a tradition. Whereas for myself, I think what he saw in me potentially was the fact that I did have this frame of reference, culturally speaking, and that it would be much, much easier for myself to advance spiritually down a certain path. And so that's where I feel things kind of took off for me. Well, that's interesting. I'm wondering uh, to what extent um, this advice that you received from the uh, uh, Hindu uh, guru um, that you met, I guess, at the restaurant uh, that you ate at, um, to what extent he already had that impression about you or to what extent it emerged from conversation where you would have mentioned or discussed or uh, revealed this um, this linkage to to a family tradition. And so it would be easy in retrospect to kind of say that, oh, he probably picked up on something. However, at least within the first 20 minutes of conversation that I remember, we didn't touch on the topic whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It was uh, simply my interest in, um, in Hindu- Hinduism that we were speaking of. Mm-hmm. So... I think that if he was picking up on something, it would have been much more on the subtle level. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, so, that that makes sense. It certainly speaks to his integrity that uh, that he would yeah. uh, actually communicate that uh, message to you. It, it really did. It really did. And he he was a wonderful gentleman. Like I said, I I thank him for his advice, and it was just one of those other things along the way that pushed me in the right direction for myself. So then how, how did the um, relationship to the pagan tradition of uh, presumably the North Norse tradition and the Scottish tradition became, I guess, become aligned around you or how did you align around it? So after that meeting, like I said, I definitely had the traditions growing up to begin with. Um, but after that meeting, I sort of took some time to consider my how I was raised, the traditions that we had, um, and to really take into account um, where my interests lay, kind of with the unknown and the mysterious and kind of those things where I I recognized growing up, like I was so, so interested in the Loch Ness monster, you know, that was one of those things. And obviously that's Scottish. And so that really kind of fueled the fire, so to speak. And then um, one of the things growing up too, was my mother used to read the tales out of the, uh, she didn't read them directly from the Eddas, but uh, they were Norse tales essentially that had been uh, modernized, for, for children. And that was something that I loved. I absolutely loved those tales growing up. And so I had to look back at those things. And after considering them, 
I just kind of looked out there to see what there was. And at the time, there really wasn't much movement within what's now called the CR community, Celtic Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, or, or Celtic, Celtic polytheism in general. There really wasn't a ton of literature out there at the time, but there was some. And so I, I did uh, receive a few books at the time to kind of wet my whistle, so to speak. And I definitely felt drawn to that. Um, there was a bit out there, but again, not too much of accessibility for books on um, Ausatru or heathenry or whatever you want to call it for the Norse tradition. Um, so I got what I could and I felt what was right. And I just kind of worked through it. And I can't say that I'm necessarily an adherent of one strictly or the other, because I do have pieces that I incorporate from both because I I do have culture and ancestry from both. And I I feel that kind of there is a merging of those traditions in a way. Yeah. Such for me, um, my, my practice itself is probably a little bit more on the, the Norse side of things. However, one of the pieces that I came to venerate and really appreciate over the years was the Gundestrup Cauldron. And you can probably see right behind me here, I've got a a replica of it. And that is sort of the central focus piece on my altar back there. Um, So I I can't say that I really venture one way or the other too much. I've I've merged them. And I feel that that is a tradition that probably would have existed with the merging of cultures. So when you had the Norse incursions into Scotland, there would have been a, a blending of Celtic and Norse cultures at that point in time. And yes, you know, probably the Scottish by that point in time were almost nearly all officially Christian, but there was the dual faith. And so, yes, they would go to church on on Sundays and so forth or what have you, but on their everyday practices, they still left offerings out to the little folk. They, They would engage in these traditions all the way up until the 1800s when you had various folklorists Uh, talk about them and write them down so you know that even though a lot of these people would officially call themselves christians as such the practices that they did were sort of on both sides you know they honored their the christian aspect of things and they honored the pagan aspect of things um yeah it's just as they encountered different cultures, I feel that they would have uh, brought them together and unified them in a way. And that was certainly absolutely uh, something that happened in in Gaul, where the Romans and the the Celts came together, essentially, and there was a fusion Gallo-Roman culture. That was a thing. Um, So I don't feel that what I'm doing is necessarily ahistorical at all. It's definitely something that would have existed at, at some point in time. You're, you uh, reminded me that uh, I, uh, in my archaeological life, um, uh, I came across a book a number of years ago called uh, The Barbarians Speak. And um, it's, it's about, or one of, the, one of the topics is precisely this fusing of uh, Roman 
and uh, Celtic um, cultural traditions in what's now France, mostly. And um, and and one of the one of the arguments made there is that is that it's the, that the Celtic elites were very attracted to and and saw their own elite status even enhanced by connection with Roman elites. And it would sort of be uh, something of a top-down uh, merging of cultural influences. And, and, and it occurs to me that, you know, as, as we know with all these people uh, moving around uh, or, or along the peripheries of Northwest Europe from 500 to uh, well after 1000 uh, AD, that there would be something a little similar to that, not quite as as coherent because the Roman culture during its Rome's height had a, had a coherency, but um, but it sounds like to me what you're talking about is in in your experience of your family tradition, in what we think we know from historical and archaeological examinations is that we get um, cultural influences from elites uh, filtering down to where common people are actually living their lives. And another example that's occurring to me is in, is in the, um, the antebellum slavery period of the South with uh, African slaves. I have uh, a friend who uh, that was her that was her focus, and there were all these religious traditions that that you see the material culture evidence for in excavations of, of slave um, inhabitations, etc. Which nobody's writing about because the only, for the most part, the only people writing are the elites who have a um, connection to the um, elite culture of the time. So this is a very interesting phenomenon. And, 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 and here we are in the 21st century and starting in the late 20th century, insofar as I understand it, we're finding people trying to work backwards, if you will. Absolutely. In, in, that, in that movement. I, I wonder, so I wonder if, if, you, if you have anything general to say about it, but also in particular to your own um, exploration of, of, of these aspects of mysticism or transcendence um, as you've been exploring them? Well, I think that in general, there we're definitely seeing a huge resurgence of individuals reaching out for spiritual traditions that are outside of the realm of the monotheistic faith. So we know that Christianity is somewhat, uh, it's not really popular right now, that there's a lot of people leaving the faith and for many different reasons. But most of those that are leaving are either uh, seeking out pagan traditions, becoming atheists or what have you, uh, but those that are going into these uh, other traditions, I feel, are really tying back to something either 
in their own past, whether they're trying to have some sort of tangible connection to their ancestors, which I think is a huge aspect of spirituality. For me personally, it's a huge aspect. Um, I was a, a genealogist. That's kind of my, my day job as a genealogist. Started that growing up. It was a huge fascination for me. I would talk to my grandmother for hours on end about stories of ancestors and people that we were related to and things like that. But I think that as we become more and more uh, multicultural and more of this metropolitan uh, kind of situation, we as individuals also kind of gravitate towards what made us comfortable growing up and those, those traditions, we long for them again. Um, for me as an individual, I found that uh, definitely going to the big cities, you know, there was a lot that they had to offer, you know, don't get me wrong, but I began to appreciate more and more the small town life that I had growing up and sort of the, the closeness to the land and something within paganism that is absolutely huge is that connection to the land. It's a, oftentimes described of, as a nature-based spirituality. Mm-hmm. And so there are different facets of why I feel paganism in general is really drawing a lot of people in right now. And you can even see this on things like, I, I don't have TikTok, but I know on TikTok, there's this kind of trend right now that's called a witch talk. So a lot of people are being drawn in to the pagan community and pagan traditions through this witch talk trend. Um, it's just, it's very interesting to watch this all play out psychologically speaking too, because you have individuals like young who was very much into the archetype uh, aspect of things and he had a great thesis on uh, Odin or Wotan and him being sort of like the prototypical um, archetype for the Germanic people and he was a, a big critic obviously uh, of Hitler at the time but he said that you know there was individuals that were tapping into this kind of well of ancestral uh, tradition as such. So there was something that he recognized even that was going on in Europe in mid-century that there was sort of this, I'm not going to say a regression because that makes it sound bad, but that this tie back to more simple time, simplicity, and uh, maybe traditions that were some feel more authentic. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting history because I've run across the the discussion that the original hippies in California were actually German. And they came oh. out. And they came out of this. Uh, not the Volk tradition. Not not the uh, not the tradition that began to be distorted into kind of a an Aryan mythos. But the back to nature, simplicity, 
uh, clean food, clean living, live to the land. There were people who came out from Germany in the early 20th century, I think 20s, 30s ish, would live in places like Palm Springs and, uh, and they, they would look like the hippies of the 60s, you know, that, and, and that, those, that influence actually, there's a, a continual linkage to the explosion of that kind of awareness with the, uh, the youth culture in the 60s. So yeah, definitely a powerful connection there. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I wasn't familiar with that, but it makes sense. It definitely makes sense. So, so I wanted to, you know, as we talk about how you, how this practice shows up for you, there's a level in which you have written quite a bit and uh, even uh, written children's stories or a, a children's book that we have in our bookstore that... Which uh, we'll link to, of course, yeah. uh, uh, with this <laughs> book. But, but it, it, it tries to make the, uh, the this mythological context very accessible in, in very simple language and, and uh, read, reads very uh, well in a sense of like as a a kid's story, but also an adult story about how these myths show up. But how does the practice show up for you? And I, and, and I'm interested in, is this something that you've created for yourself? Are there, is there source material that you've drawn on? You know, how, how, how have you made these practices more than something you're just reading about and uh, enjoying and something that becomes a lived experience? Um, well, there's a lot of different facets to that. And I suppose, firstly, is just looking back to, like I said, family traditions. That was kind of the first area that I looked at. And then folklore was huge, absolutely huge, because I feel more than the mythology, the folkloric practices and the folkloric traditions that lived on in various areas really held so much of the values of a people. And so I have a couple of resources right here that I found most influential over the years. Uh, the Gaelic Otherworld. This is a book, well, it's pretty much two books together. It's uh, by John Gregerson Campbell. He collected a lot of folk traditions in the, the Highlands back in uh, the 1800s. And those customs, those things that people did, there's a lot of it that if you take, it, sometimes there's not even a Christian veneer on there. Uh, sometimes it's just working with fairies. Uh, sometimes it's leaving out offerings of oatmeal with cream or butter, uh, different things like this. Um, so there's a lot of aspects to working with the little folks, so to speak, uh, having connection to your land with sacred trees where things that were called Clutie wells, where people would end up, uh, if, if they had a sickness in the household and they needed healing, they would end up taking like a, a little tether of cloth and tying them into the tree. Uh, so they were sacred, sacred spaces. Oftentimes you end up finding within a lot of this folklore tradition, sacred trees and holy wells. Mm. Uh, so wells and trees were very, very holy to the, the Celts as well as the Germanic people. And with myself, uh, I always 
try to, well, we try to find a home that's within an area that's close to uh, nature because nature does have such a, a prominent place within my spirituality. So being able to go out on a walk and just sit in nature and listen to the birds and get into a clear space as far as some might have the active practice of meditation. For me, I prefer going out into nature and just zenning out, so to speak. Obviously, that's not <laughs> a... It sounds, uh, it sounds like forest bathing, the Japanese practice of forest bathing as it's been imported yes. to the U.S. Exactly. I, I, I just prefer going out into nature and hearing and listening to all that it has to offer. And sometimes I'll get great insights out there for my writings. Oftentimes I will get ideas when I'm just out listening to the nature. So that's something that's very important to me. Um, as far as ancestry and genealogy, uh, that's something that I find honoring one's ancestors, whoever they are, you know, I, I find getting to know them through the genealogical practice to be very important uh, for myself personally, but I'm not sure if everyone else is going to feel this, but personally, that's a huge part of my practice is getting to know them that way. And then fleshing that out in more of a meditative practice. If I never met them in life, I'll actively try to seek them out with a meditative practice and see if anyone comes and maybe visits me and the meditation, so to speak. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, I, I think that individual spirit has its own free will and autonomy. It doesn't have to come if, if it doesn't want to. So that's just uh, me personally. But my practice, I feel, is very much centered on much more of the day-to-day -day affairs than the larger aspect. A lot of people are focused on the mythology and getting to know the deities, the gods, and what they represent. For me, it's much more in the small day-to-day -day matters. And so that's where all this comes in. Hmm. Well, this is very interesting. So yesterday, I believe, I was uh, reading a, uh, a blog post by a, a guy named Bernardo Castrop who's a computer scientist and has written a bunch of stuff. Stuart, Stuart actually knows his work and I'm going to start reading it more. But in this post about him essentially uh, shaking the, uh, the dust from his sandals of the Catholic faith after the, uh, some of the recent uh, pronouncements and, fa and, and failures to take advantage of the possibility for change by the present Pope who he likes. Um, in the course of that uh, blog post, he, he uses a particular definition of religion, um, the word religion, which comes from the Latin religion, but um, he, he calls it uh, re ligare. And he translates that as to connect with transcendence. And, and so it's very interesting to me, this uh, tension, if you will, and it came up in what you were just saying, between um, transcendence as 
as a as a goal often expressed by a lot of like uh, westerners who get involved with say buddhism and they want to connect with emptiness and experience that which emerges from emptiness whereas you were just talking about something that i see in what i've read about and we've had we've had you know various pagan practitioners on the show before and and a lot of it is a, is specifically about um, rituals and practices that are not intended or or i mean th- th- there's an understanding that they're part of a greater whole but they're more more narrowly focused if you will i don't like the word narrowly because that it has a somewhat negative connotation, but I, but I don't mean a negative connotation by it. And I'm wondering if you if you have if something arises for you um, in connection with this in terms of how you are experiencing. I was very interested in, in this uh, book that you were just uh, describing, um, in the you know from the 18th century uh, Scottish um, um, fellow. So as far as how should I say this? As far as this dichotomy between what you were describing, transcendence, and more of the uh, the focus that what I'm talking about, I, I don't feel that there's a huge disconnect between the two because I feel that within the smaller, well, there's the old adage, uh, as above, so below. The microcosm is manifest everything that's in the macrocosm. And so by having these rituals that are more focused on maybe the day-to-day aspect of things, you can get to know those more uh, abstract and very remote uh, transcendent ideas and principles and beings as such. So for me, when I get to know an ancestor, I feel that in a way the deities move through them. And so with the love that they expressed to each other in their life, uh, there is an aspect of, one might say, uh, Frigg as the the wife of Odin, the love that she had for for her husband. You you can see the qualities of the deities manifest not just within one's ancestors, but within the people around you. And so rituals, when I conduct rituals, this is something that I have in the forefront of being able to connect to the divine and a more controls ritualized setting um at least that's the way that it works for me um like i said i'm not going to say that the way that i do things is going to work for everybody else Uh, my consciousness and the way that i process and do things could be completely different than even my husband's so it's gonna be different for each individual but it's just how it works for me and the process that i go through even when vetting information from a book you know i I put things into practice and if it works for me it works if it doesn't well it it might be a scottish tradition but if it doesn't work well i'm not going to use it i'm not going to spend 
hours and hours trying to get something to work that doesn't. Well, th thank you for, for that clarification. I, I certainly didn't mean to imply a differing valuation to these two, you know, it, it, it's, I see a, it's not tension in a negative sense, but I, but I see a, a spectrum of ways to connect with transcendence. And that's what I was trying to get at uh, with my question. And, and that's why I'm, I'm intrigued by, by, by the whole direction that, that, that you're pointing to. I don't think we've had anyone on the show before. We've certainly had, as I said before, pagan practitioners um, connecting through, um, you know, the various rituals and practices that they do, which, which, which may connect to these, this bigger realm of transcendence, but starts at, at the more grounded level. Um, but I don't think we've had anyone particularly, and you can <laughs> tell me if I'm um, forgetting something, Stuart. Uh, I don't think we've had anyone focused on ancestors in the way that you're doing. And I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Uh, it also reminds me of our, we have a friend, uh, um, who you would have met at the, at the bookstore, my friend, uh, uh, Jim Wilson, who, um, has long had a had a sort of a kind of ancestral veneration practice of his own. I think it emerged out of his connection with uh, Korean Buddhism, uh, Korean uh, Chan, and um, but now is is often manifesting through his uh, his renewed interest in Shinto. Okay, so um, so. So this is really interesting to me, and um, so uh, maybe, maybe. Well, I, I want to. I'll make a couple comments on this. That, um, in fact, just a few weeks ago, we had a, a friend of ours on the show, Teresa Dentino, and uh, um, yeah. she, her configuration is very interesting for this conversation because her connection to. Her spirituality is lineage based in the sense that her great grandmother was an Italian strega. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, but. Which we should say for listeners is a, a wise woman, a healer, practitioner. Um, in the Italian tradition. In the, in the Italian tradition. And she did not transmit to her um, daughter. Daughter, I, for the whatever great, reason, the, the daughter wasn't interested, or right. didn't. It, that, so the essentially the transmission stopped. But Teresa felt a connection and and, and actively, actually actively sought to yeah, to reconnect. Actually, with yeah, actually uh, sought uh, um, not unlike the way you're describing to uh, uh, reconnect with this ancestor. And out of that, interestingly, she was led by her ancestor to. Uh, uh, receive initiation in a West African Dagra stick divination tradition. Oh, wow. Now, the teacher was a Westerner who was an uh, initiate in this tradition, but the tradition definitely was, uh, 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 I think, Nigerian or... Uh, yeah, in that, in, that, in, so. that, in that region. And so that she practices in that tradition, but she also has a strong connection uh, with the Strega line. And so there are cultural forms in the Dagara tradition where the we people 
are referred to as Wedeme, uh, which in a sort of more Western hermetic sense, you might call earth elementals, um, or in a Western, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a spiritual uh, base you call fairies. But essentially, these beings are absolutely central to the divination and the practice. And in fact, the Wedeme will often in a divination give uh, you know, practices for people to do that involve offerings. And, uh, and those offerings typically are located in place. So it, there's, there's just still the sense of the, of the spiritual expression nature, being connected to nature. And, and so, so there's a sense in which we've had friends who, you know, where lineage is important, but lineage uh, might show up in very odd different ways, because here you have a Nigerian tradition kind of fusing with a uh, Italian uh, tradition and or, and or it, maybe acting in parallel acting in par but yeah it, but it, it shows up for Teresa as a, a whole package and yeah and that and that's that's interesting you know another uh, another influence uh, on us she, and, she's the whole package really yeah she's the whole package <laughs> yeah but the other influence that uh, comes up in this conversation is a um, Western magical teacher named R.J. Stewart. I, I don't know if you, you so you know his work. I do know his work. Yes. Yeah. So so he's someone that you know he's actually been in our store a couple times in the past when he lived in uh, Northern California and you know doing and we've we've done a number workshops of uh, workshops with him. and rituals with but him, but with him part of his work is uh, very much embedded in the fairy tradition and and the the Scottish the Scottish uh, Celtic tradition as well. And I remember in comments he would make that uh, ancestors and uh, connection with ancestors is part of that tradition, that, that, that that's something that uh, shows up. And it's not that all ancestors are bearers of wisdom. Uh, much of what we do with ancestors is in some ways cleaning karma too. That's always uh, so per perhaps you can you can talk a little yeah. bit about that. Um, I don't know if did you. Yeah, no, I don't. Please, I, I just I, I just wanted to throw those things out those those elements out there and have you respond to uh, you know some of what we were just discussing. Yeah, because this ancestor stuff is is as, as Stuart says, we've worked with people who who have talked about the connection to ancestors and and. But I, but I'm really interested to know more about your experience yeah. of this, your exploration. Of and, it. and I'm also interested in your response on R.J. Stewart's work because that's something that we have a fair amount of knowledge about. So, as far as his work, uh, in fact, some of those early books that I ended up reading on more of the Celtic and the fairy line of things, mm -hmm. uh, he was one of my early influences. Uh, his book, Merlin, if I remember correctly, is yeah. what it was mm -hmm. titled, uh, which was like a combination of two of his other books, if I remember correctly, was quite good. And I remember I had that in my collection for quite some time. Uh, so I really appreciated it, definitely, uh, very much of a fairy focus. M my focus went beyond that, obviously. And so that was just a, a pit stop along the way. Um, as far as ancestry and kind of what you were talking about with karma, for me, um, I have run into some situations where there have been ancestors 
that died in a very negative mindset with a, a negative mindset. So that's something that with what you were talking about with clearing karma, it's kind of a dicey thing because for me, I don't feel that I can necessarily push them. It, it, it's their mindset. It's something that they have to come to, to their own volition to get beyond something. So I feel like you can potentially awaken them to a certain path and maybe be that instigator to help them get beyond that control drama that they might've had in their lifetime or what they died with. It's very tough um, because it, it can get very emotionally uh, entangled. And I, I, I try to keep a, a boundary up so that it doesn't bleed over into when I come out of meditation, so to speak. But sometimes you will come out completely drained mm. and it, it's, you feel some of the things that they felt in their lifetime and it, it can be difficult. It can be really difficult, but for the most part, I would say 90% of the time, 95% of the time, it, it's been a very positive experience. And I found that most of the individuals out there, ancestrally speaking, they have your best interest at heart. They, they want to see their, their people, quote unquote, to their children, their children's children succeed. And so in a way, I feel like the majority of them will be on the practitioner's side, quote unquote, um, and do their best to help you along the way. Like you said, not all of them are going to be great sages. They're not going to have the wisdom of the eons, but they might be able to push you in the right direction. If you're looking for something, if you're trying to, um, to find a specific uh, herb for healing and they knew about it in their lifetime, they might know. Uh, it's just, it depends. It really depends on, on the individual spirit. But like I said, occasionally you will run into to one or two out there that just, they, they died in such a manner or they lived in such a manner that they really were, were not necessarily good humans. So of course they're not necessarily going to be good spirits in the afterlife. They don't get over it right away. There's, <laughs> <laughs> there's it takes time it takes time so so the advice get over yourself uh, um is still good <laughs> for <Yes>. ancestors apparently <laughs> well now in in uh, shamanic traditions there's the uh, idea of uh, psychopomp work in which uh, uh a practitioner will help the spirit cross yeah, well, yeah, essentially help the spirit uh, realize that they're actually dead, uh, that they're in a different realm. They're, they're, they're not, not still living the drama. Right. That that and, and the implication in that worldview is that um, when our physical bodies die, what remains of us is very capable of uh, being diluted, uh, rather like being in a dream, I think, where you're not really in control, where the world is uh, basically functioning and you have no idea that uh, 
there are other possibilities. And so, the, so the, the shamanic uh, uh, work or, uh, is to help offer the possibility. Now, again, I don't, it's, it's that those traditions are very rigorous about control and, uh, you know, permission, but it's, it's essentially to help to, to make, make possibilities available. Uh, one shaman we had on our show referred to it as um, sort of like, you know, we're all connected, but someone who's in that kind of state, it's kind of a little bit like when your uh, hand goes to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and so what you're trying to do is to kind of reconnect the lines of vitality so that there's a full, uh, you know, kind of co a communion of unity and individuality happening again. I totally get that. Yeah. You know, over the years, I have had the, the pleasure and benefit to uh, have a couple friends as well as just acquaintances that I've known that are shamanic practitioners as such. And as far as my own tradition, I never kind of gravitated towards the shamanic side of things, even though I had influences around me that were very much of that nature. Um, I, I guess one, the cultural aspect of things, there's, you know, significant cultural differences uh, between uh, Siberian shamanism, core shamanism as well. It's just yeah. devoid of any culture. Uh, for me, there's definitely similarities within uh, Celtic traditions, within Norse traditions with Sather and the North tra Norse tradition. There's definitely correspondence to shamanic practice, um, but it's unique in its own right. And I, I think to, to label something as shamanic, that's sailor say we're talking about that in particular i think it i i know that it's become an academic can, can you can you define sailor for listeners because so sailor is a norse uh practice of it, it's a magical practice as such and it can involve a lot of different things. What we have attested to in the Eddas as well as the Saga material is that say there was, uh, it had divination in it, uh, that you work with spirits. Uh, so it's oracular divination in a way. Um, and there's a lot of correspondence to shamanism in there there's the beating of a vet which some people say that that is similar to a drum so is similar to drumming they've got a a, a gander which is a, a wand uh, you can see these online there's a lot of uh, old archaeological digs that have found these old vulva wands for a long time they thought they were fish hooks because the ends were bent and archaeologists have thought that maybe that was a way to break their power in death, so to speak. So it's interesting because there is a lot of correspondence with working with spirits, calling down the spirits, which happened, like I said, in the Sog material and working with them. But we don't have a ton of material regarding Sather. So there is a lot of conjecture. It's up to the individual to do the best that they can with the material that's left. And I find that Neil Price's work 
um, is quite good. He, the Viking Way is a, a book out there that specifically looks at a lot of the magical traditions and the Norse tradition from a uh, academic standpoint. And he's really, really detailed. There's other works out there, don't get me wrong, that are practitioner based. And they're good as well, but they do incorporate a lot of material that is core shamanism mm. that has just been transposed under the sailor heading. So, so, so uh, this is an interesting point. And can you just, for our listeners who may not be familiar, can you just describe what core shamanism is? And then I, then I want, I have a question about that. So core shamanism uh, was essentially a practice that you had ended up taking the shamanistic tradition, taking out all of the cultural aspects from it, completely taking it down to its base elements. And that is what became core shamanism. And then later practitioners of various traditions have sort of put things in like extra spices into the basic recipe and have now made it kind of their own. And in some ways, like I said, within the Norse tradition, they have taken the, the base of Sather and put in core shamanism as well to make it into something more grandiose than maybe what it originally was. That's, that's a possibility there. Um, like I said, don't get me wrong, they're good books, but they oftentimes don't say that that's what they've done and they yeah. pass it off as being, well, this is what... Well, that, so are you talking about Michael Harner, just to make, just to be clear? Yes. Here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's a, it's an interesting. The reason I'm asking the question is that uh, we've uh, met shaman who have trained in core shamanism, but then uh, went on to train with uh, uh, Native Americans and and the like, and so they felt like the core shamanism was useful for getting a certain basic kind of training of sensitivity and ability and visualization and and the like but it wasn't the end point for them and there's another i i sense underneath it's is a light critique not a I, I, i'm not taking you as being negative on what they're doing but it's it's like there is a kind of a scientism about core shamanism which assumes that there's an abstract objective reality that all shamanic traditions and all um um uh, nature-based religions all sort of adhere to because there's an objective reality which is a very scientific notion and then we can abstract that uh and then that abstraction becomes a, a tool for reconstructing missing elements in a tradition like the norse tradition where you may not have all the uh pieces because it was a largely oral tradition and not a written tradition so exactly. that, but i hear you saying that well you can do that and that uh, the doing of that is uh, in some way potentially creating a new thing. It is, and I just feel that it's best to label that if that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. it, it, there's authenticity that comes with saying, hey, this is what we know historically that say there was. And if we wanna practice it now, maybe it would be useful to end up incorporating core shamanism in the practice and label exactly what is authentic 
say there and what is the core shamanism and let people kind of work with it themselves. But oftentimes I've seen various books out there that don't label that and they just, it's, oh. (laughs) Well, uh, well, let me, this question of authenticity is, is interesting, you know, as a, as an archeologist, I've had to, I mean, one one of the reasons that I ended up doing my dissertation research in uh, southern Scandinavia is precisely that native uh, North Americans are very understandably sensitive to having anything about uh, the archaeological interpretation of their ancestors handled by other people. And so I wanted to ask a certain question about uh, gender and um, and that's why I went to because because I have ancestors in that part of the world it felt authentic to me right yep. but but um, this um, uh, you know there's there's a lot of and and I'd say there's there's in some ways even more sensitivity to this in uh, coming into anthropology and and related social sciences right now about not projecting onto um, these traditions in the way that you, that you're just that you're clearly uncomfortable um, uh, acknowledging unless people are clear about just what they're doing. And I think that there's a there's a real yeah. I'm thinking of we had a a, um, a guest on the show who um, well, I'm. I'm You'll, the name will come back to me in a moment, but he he's uh, both a Qigong Ken Cohen, that's his name. He's a Qigong practitioner, but he also was adopted into a, a First Nations Canadian Cherokee. I think. Uh, no, I don't think it's Cherokee. Um, uh, Central, um, you know, Plains tradition. Okay. And um, and he, his book about that is honoring the medicine. And and I think he's really clear in that book about what he's doing, even though obviously he's influenced by this work that preceded, I guess, his connection uh, to the First Nations group um, uh, with Qigong. He doesn't mix them. In fact, he's very clear about not mixing them, even though you can infer that how, how, how could there not be some kind of bleed through, if you will. And, and and there is, you know, there, there has been indefinitely within, say, we're talking about Sather. There, within hundreds of miles around the Norse people, there were shamanistic, quote unquote, groups of people. There were the Sami, and they were indigenous Scandinavians that they predominantly uh, end up herding reindeer. And they're very much in communication with nature, and they're the prototypical shamanistic society, essentially. But the thing is, is that if you're completely taking on that shamanistic element and just transposing it into what is called Sather, for me, it's going to be a no-go because I feel that 
the authentic way would have been that these people lived side by side for hundreds of years. They would have developed their own way of incorporating these traditions. And it would have taken time. It, there was a relationship that would have developed between the two groups of people. And you would have to be very, very conscientious about how to develop this. And it might take a person's lifetime to blend these two cultures together. And even then you might not necessarily do it justice. Um, in fact, that's why I really haven't written anything on my own tradition as far as my writings that I have out there. I feel that what I'm doing is for myself. And while I certainly feel that there was a, a blending between the cultures of the Norse and the Celtic peoples, because they were neighbors, they lived by side by side. Um, I, I feel that it's only something that I can speak of as a tradition for myself. And I can't, you know, write about it for somebody else to do because I don't know, I, I could be off on a lot and I don't want to pass on anything with the authority that one might give me is saying that this is authentic when it's not necessarily. So when, when you, you. work it within the, the tradition for yourself, do you find rather than, let's say, having to rely on a would-be authority who's transposed something like core shamanism into the tradition, do you find that your connection has the vitality to reveal to you the tradition? In other words, does, do the pieces get filled in? Like if there's pieces that are missing, do they get filled in by your intuition and engagement with beings and entities connected with the tradition that you have access to filling in the pieces? Well, and, and that is something that I definitely try to work with. And there have been quite a few things that have been revealed to me in meditation practice and so forth. And they definitely work for me. And I'm happy to use them in my personal practice. And I feel that they are authentic. But again, I, I don't want to write about this for somebody else necessarily. It's something that I've come to. And I, I also feel like it almost robs people too of their own work in the process. Mm -hmm. If you just write a, a simple book one, two, three, four, this is what you do kind of situation. The spiritual path is something that it takes a lot of turns. It takes a lot of deviations and eventually you get to, uh, you know, your end point. But I feel like half the, half the work is often lost with the simple books that's, you know, the, this, you know, the, the guidelines of, okay, one, two, three, four, and then now you're an advanced practitioner of yada, 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 whatever it might be. And that's not to say that it doesn't work for some people because it, it might, but at least in my case, I just don't feel that that works for me. Let me, let me ask you a question um, while we're still on this topic. You, you mentioned that uh, your uh, small W work in the world is as a genealogist. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm wondering um, how that has um, informed and, and intersected with the, the practice, uh, your, your own 
connection to ancestors and and so forth? Well, I feel like my spiritual aspect has actually helped me a lot within my genealogical work because oftentimes I'll have dreams and in the dreams, maybe a name is revealed to me and I'll go and ferret that out through some of the records and I find out, lo and behold, wow, it's in the family tree. Uh, So there's definitely overlap there. Um, Conversely, I definitely find out lots of information from my ancestors on my practice. And as a, a genealogist as well, I, I feel that I've been able to help a lot of individuals on their spiritual path. Because as we were talking about earlier, there are a lot of people right now who are coming home to pagan traditions, who are coming home to... Uh, various magical uh, kind of traditions as such or meditation practices or whatever you want to call it, metaphysical practices. And I feel that oftentimes I will get a little bit of insight and it might be from their ancestors. I also do rune readings and oftentimes ancestors will come in when I'm doing a rune reading and I've been able to help a lot of individuals through that practice. And when I do that, when I do the rune readings, I really don't see it as anything that I'm doing on my end. It's the individual's ancestor that's just coming in and giving me information. I'm just receiving it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that the the magic is in the runes themselves. I don't feel that as the person receiving the information, I'm doing anything special other than just providing a a clear mind so that one's ancestors or one's guides or what might be able to come in and actually relay the information to the individual in such a way that they're able to receive it. So a couple of things that uh, languaging that you've used here that I, I find very interesting right now because we are at a time where ways of thinking are in society kind of up for grabs, you know, because we've gone through a religious phase, we've gone through a scientific phase, and it seems like the scientific phase is uh, losing ground in the modern, certainly the modern American experience. And so I'm, I, I guess I'm interested in what I, I would call magical thinking. I've, I've recently read some material uh, by a writer named Lionel Snell called My Years of Magical Thinking. And he describes, he kind of counterposes magical thinking, scientific thinking, religious thinking, and artistic thinking. But magical thinking has this element of uh, willingly investing your belief in something. uh, And then if it works, keeping it. And if it doesn't work, uh, kind of putting it aside. And, and so it's very practical, but belief is also very fluid. We can invest our belief in these traditional forms and it doesn't, it doesn't require of us a, what you might call a scientific commitment or a religious commitment. It just requires of us a practical belief commitment. And by which he means, I, I just want to be clear about this, by which he means, as I understand it from what you've said, um, holding a view um, while 
undergoing a practice is, is that yeah yeah but and it can be to me it can be deeper and richer but i mean when i think about our ancestors in their practice of uh, uh earth-based uh religions it it does seem pretty uh i mean it's a magical worldview but it's also incredibly practical you make offerings to these entities and it's not you wouldn't be doing that if uh if something didn't happen and and the important point I think uh, that I, I want to get your response to is that from a scientific perspective, and you see this in anthropology as you know, as they interpret uh, quote unquote primitives peoples, they all locate this as belief. We believe these ridiculous things, and we just you know keep believing them. Whereas I think in the lived experience that you believe these things, but by giving this belief, then things start to happen that actually confirm that belief. And we I won't go into the details now, but when we've had uh, divinations with this friend of ours, uh, we were describing from uh, using the stick tradition, things came out of that that were defied explanation from a scientific worldview. And so I, I, I'm throwing that out because I'm, I'm interested in your take on that, that framework and and then the, beyond just responding to the question of magical thinking and the way that I've configured it I'm also interested in how the tension between magical thinking and say scientific thinking uh shows up for you now as a member of the 21st century America <laughs> well I, I definitely uh, I definitely agree that consciousness influences our reality in such a way that it, it can make very bizarre things happen. And like you were saying with our ancestors, one would think that they would be in a, a time frame in a place that wouldn't necessarily allow for just resources to go to the wayside they didn't have the luxury of giving offerings to, to spirits if it didn't pay off. There, there was scarcity mindset back then. There definitely wasn't much surplus as what we have nowadays. So you consider that in the circumstances, in the way that they were living at the time, you, you would really think that if it didn't pay off, if the offerings didn't work for them, that they would just stop. They wouldn't do it anymore. There was some sort of tangible benefit for them to do the practices that they did. And I feel that whether that was through their personal consciousness influencing the outcome or whether it was through some external force of, you know, a spirit or a deity or whatever it might have been there was some sort of relationship that existed and there was a, a payoff for them that happened in, in the end. And that's why we have these traditions that have lived on that have come down to us nowadays. So that that's, I, I guess, the short answer on that yeah. side of things. So then on the other side of the question was, how, how does it show up for you now as a, because we all have to kind of walk this interesting uh, uh, knife's edge it is, and I'm. It's kind of borne out in some of our talking already, where I'm very much one for being a stickler for authenticity in a way, and I, I want, I want to have scientific uh, backing for as much as 
what I can have. So I come from my undergrad is in psychology and I, I definitely love understanding the inner workings of the mind. And so as far as uh, Jung and his analysis of uh, the various archetypes and how that figures in, I, I find that fascinating and quite interesting. So even just in my personal practice for understanding things on a different level, I love having the scientific side of things. Conversely, um, how things kind of play out in my personal practice, uh, there have been lots of things which I can't understand from a, a rational viewpoint. And I don't even try anymore on <laughs> some of the things that have happened. But I do feel like it's important to have that in your wheelhouse, the, the scientific understanding in, your, in the back of your mind so that you can reference it, it for others even, just to talk about something, to be able to put it into a language that they understand. Um, maybe they don't understand the spiritual language of things. And so you just translate that over into, okay, I'm not going to talk about deities i'm going to talk about archetypes i'm not going to talk about the powers of the mind i'm going to talk about consciousness you know th th there's there's ways of using the language at least to uh better the dialogue between you and another individual so at least it it helps me talk to others in in such a way that they understand yeah, that 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 helps. I mean, in in many ways, when we use a term like mystical positivism, it's uh, uh, threading that needle in the way that you've just described. So, um, uh, you've published a number of uh, uh, you know relatively short articles in, on this uh, website called owlcation dot com. Owl, as in o the the bird O W L, cation. Uh, yes. One word dot com, and and there was a quote at, at the end of one of them that 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 I want to uh, bring to your attention and ask you to comment on, because um, because I have some um, I've long had a fascination with this, um, and the quote is people of the period, and you're referring to this um, thousand years ago or more. A period people of the period would have been likely to see death as a day-to-day -day concern whereas modern people in western societies have lost this proximity to death and subsequently the associated wisdom that comes from routine experiences highlighting life's fragility um i, I think that's exactly right um i think that there's a diff in other words i think there's a difference between pre-modern or non-Western thinking about life and death and, and their, their interconnection. Uh, it, it, it has shown up from the 20th century on in America uh, with uh, death as, as a substantially taboo um, arena of experience and understanding. But um, but you suggest, I mean, inherent in, in the quote I read of yours is the suggestion that by doing, by making this or experiencing death as a taboo area, um, 
there's the consequence of of losing that sense of life's fragilities such that we um, imagine that, as you see occasionally in articles and on the web today, oh, we can make ourselves immortal. And, um, you know, this, this sort of fantasy world. So, um, and, and specifically what, it, what comes to mind is that some of the things you read about how, for example, people in antiquity viewed um, a glorious death. And, I, and, I'm, and, and, and nowadays we don't, there's not much cultural purchase to that phrase. You know, you'll see it, you'll see it applied to, um, you know, uh, the honoring of families of the, of the dead who've, you know, served in the military or something like that. But it doesn't, it doesn't have the, re, the, the, the remarkable cultural rele, uh, relevance that, that we seem to read in um, written work from antiquity about that. And and I'm wondering if you have have uh, have something you could say uh, about this, because I think it's a fascinating this this real difference between how we see life and death and its connection today, or its not lack of connection. Although spiritual traditions like uh, our own fourth way tradition make um, strong assertions about that connection, but but it's it's something that I think Western society is wrestling with right now. It certainly is, especially in the wake of COVID. You know, I, I feel that there's an entire generation of individuals right now who are sort of grappling with, with death and what it means and potentially coming to terms with their own mortality. I, I feel like in this moment in time, we are raising children to feel like they'll, they'll end up living to be 150 years old, potentially. And with advances in, in technology, certainly there are possibilities that people can be living lo longer. They can be centurions. They can live longer than 100. I'm not saying that they can't. But I feel that entire generations don't no longer have wisdom of what death is and what comes with that. And like you were saying with the good death that often was described in ancient, ancient times, I feel that, that with that, there was sort of a, not necessarily a reverence for death, but, but they felt that, especially with Celtic societies, that there really, it was a middle point. It was described as a middle point between a long life and that you would just transition there. That death was a transition between this life to another life as such. And so being a liminal point, there's a certain inherent mysticism and magic that comes with that. And when we push it aside, when we desanitize it and put our elderly into uh, to homes where we don't see them actually transition over, when we no longer have um, 
viewings of you know relatives who have died oftentimes we don't get even that closure that comes with seeing the person in a deceased state and i just feel that it's very saddening um, my mother's passed and with her death that was something that definitely hit very close and i would say that a lot of the depth of my spirituality only happens after her death. And I feel like her death was actually a starting point into me going into a deep dive into the spiritual side of things. I, I feel that by divorcing ourselves from death, we really are doing a disservice to all of us and keeping us from the spiritual nature that death is one of those things that helps tie us into the spiritual uh, side of things just very naturally because when we come to terms with our own mortality we want to think about it we want to understand what's beyond what's coming and it's it's just very interesting psychologically speaking too that that we're doing this uh, as a society as a whole even a hundred years ago, there was very oftentimes people would just have the, the viewings in the home, mm. in the home environment. And then they would be buried back on the back of the property. You know, there is no proximity of death any longer. And in some ways, yes, there's obviously sanitary reasons why certain precautions have been taken. But along with it, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, and it's just sad. It's very, very sad. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, they, we it, we know in this area that there are practitioners of natural death care, and that movement has uh, been growing um, over the last you know, and, and 20 Stuart or 30 and I years. Have, 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 um practiced in that yeah in that arena with with loved ones yeah when our our spiritual teacher died we uh conducted you know we had viewings and my my mom was so impressed by that that uh when my father died the family was all together and we kept his body for three days and then oh. we and uh would do kind of rituals with the body um and then took him to a uh crematorium and were the ones who pushed the body in, the ones who swept the ashes out. And, um, you know, it, what you say, I, I guess I want to underscore how, uh, at least in my lived experience and Rob's lived experience, the holding of the, you know, just the, even the holding of the bones after, you know, when they come out of the oven, you know, uh, uh, and are not pulverized is such a completion. It, it, there's there's something that happens on a body level which is real and and complete that's different than uh you know that you know most modern people are sort of mediate their lives through their psychological experience and so uh we rob ourselves of that uh, uh depth of experience and that kind of uh, deep closure in our bones that what you're describing actually makes available Absolutely. And I know that when my mom passed, you know, she was right there in front of us and she took her last breath and you could almost just feel 
her leaving. Mm-hmm. And it was more than just having her, her body no longer move. You, you could feel the spirit just lifting away. And I feel like that knowledge right there, just having that split second of being able to feel that, to have that experience is more, it's worth more than just about anything in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, When our, when our spiritual teacher died, there was a, literally the moment after his final breath, there was a, a tremor that passed through his body from, from feet up, up to the head. I turned and the first petal from a, bu- a, a bunch of roses that I'd picked in the garden here fell. The first petal fell off that bunch of roses. It um, and others and other and other signs, if you will, um, occurred in in ways that um, were very meaningful. And in contrast to that, I was with my mother. I, I was the first, the last of the family to actually speak to her when she was conscious and she died. And then my, and cause I had come back home to sleep and, um, and she died and my father immediately had her body taken away. And it was such a different kind of um, uh, experience to then come to the Catholic church and the box of her ashes, uh, as opposed to the sort of thing that we're describing here. And I think, and I think this um, this gets back to the question that we were discussing earlier, which is this tension between the transcendence that we that the mind projects beyond us, and the transcendence that manifests in our immediate uh, bodily experience of what we're doing with our bodies in this grounded world that we live in. Yeah, I I understand that. And it's something that I've thought about a lot. I guess one of the areas for me with this um, kind of situation that we're talking about is I often find when we're talking about this separation as such, there's so often the idea that the here and now, the the world is inherently inherently bad in some way, um, it, or flawed, or or yeah, it, exactly. And I guess in the tradition that I feel that within the tradition that I've kind of created for myself, I don't feel that. I don't feel that the here and now is inherently flawed or wrong or anything of that nature. It's, we, we have our lessons here. We learn here. And I feel one of the most important lessons is death itself. And death begets life. Everything in this world is predicated on that as far as anything living is predicated on death. And I I feel like that itself is a teacher. And so I don't feel like... A a feature, not a bug? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't resist. You said a teacher, not a teacher. <laughs> oh, a teacher? Not a, I thought you said feature. That's really funny. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> it is <It's> good. good. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do feel like death is a teacher. And that we yeah. it, a feature as well. It's a feature <laughs> of this world. So I, I just don't feel like there's anything necessarily wrong with death. I, I'm not going to say that I want to die tomorrow, but because I still feel that there's so much I want to do here, but I feel that it is definitely something that gives our life meaning that it allows us to appreciate the moments more. It's something that within the cycle of the year, even seeing autumn is my favorite season. And seeing and smelling everything that happens in the autumn. I, I literally love the smell of the decaying leaves. It, it sounds weird, but there's a, a mustiness that comes with it. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I, I feel that there's a holiness in, in death. And I don't know. I, I, I just, I don't see see needing to escape this world for something else. I, I wouldn't mind becoming the tree or what have you. I, I'm perfectly happy. Well, isn't that uh, the contrast with your and my Catholic upbringing? Because the, they're the goal, the, what is understood to be the ultimacy or direction or goal is, uh, is that, you know, projected perfect uh, life in heaven. And, and I, I couldn't agree more with you, but, but that it's not just in, in Catholicism or Christianity uh, more generally, it, it actually, I, I wonder to what extent Westerners who are attracted to things like Buddhism, uh, paths like Buddhism are, are, are not projecting onto that from our own cultural matrix some of the uh, here and now death phobic qualities that they've imbibed in their lives um, and projecting that onto, onto Buddhism in a way that wasn't there in other contexts. And that's certainly a possibility. Um, I, I certainly feel like we are death phobic, as you said, and Oh, I'm going to have to plug in here. I'm sorry. My computer is about ready to go off. That's okay. We, sorry uh, about that. we Not at all. This is, this is the part where Stuart does the editing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm back. <laughs> okay. Got it. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I could see that happening. I, I, I definitely do. I'm, you know my positioning on it. I, I just feel that oftentimes we take our, our baggage with us. So I, I, I feel that that's definitely something that would happen. And it's definitely something that happens in, in the pagan movement too. It's people bring Christian thought and their understanding of things into paganism very often in all sorts of different respects. And it's not something that was necessarily there in the beginning, but they sort of make it so, like the Eddas. Um, the Eddas are not a Bible. They're not going to tell you the 
the ins and outs of everything to believe they are a, a collection a collection of uh mythos and of stories that were likely important on on some level to the people but it didn't contain everything of what they believed in fact one might say that the Eddas were a collection of elite uh, material that was strictly meant for the higher echelons of society. Hmm. And that the vast majority of the material of what the layperson or the average everyday citizen would have been, had a completely different focus. And, and that's sort of my focus is the average everyday individual, what they would have experienced and a thousand, fifteen hundred years ago, what have you? I feel that the the fairy faith or the folkloric material is more along the lines of what they would have done. So uh, we are getting uh, close to the end of our time. So I wanted to uh, ask you. My understanding is that you're uh, working on a new book. And, I am. <laughs> if you're willing uh, to tell us a little bit about uh, what's coming, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear about it. So it's in contrast to my other work. Uh, the other work was uh, for children, and this is for adults, and it's specifically on Celtic religion and spirituality. So it's it takes things into a different direction, and it's not strictly the mythos itself, but it looks at things with a lot of allegory and how the myths were created to begin with and what some of them might have represented, especially when you're taking into consideration some of the other material that we have in the archeological record and marrying them up. So it, it takes a lot of things into consideration, but it looks at kind of the hidden figures behind the mythic tradition and Celtic, uh, the Celtic framework. Got it. So, and one of those in particular is Epona, which we don't have a lot on her, a lot of uh, material on her. She has virtually no written material and any written material is essentially from a Roman standpoint. And a lot of people even miss the fact that Epona was a Celtic figure because she is from the continent. And people nowadays tend to associate the Celts with the Irish and the Scottish. But ancient Gaul, which was quite extensive, um, was Celtic. And Epona was one of the most prominent figures, the only Celtic figure that was recorded down within uh, Roman uh, or was worshipped in the, the Roman areas as such uh, she was taken back to Rome so but uh, she is one of the central figures in the book and I find that her material what we do have of her is she has a much more prominent uh, much more prominence than what my, one might figure she has analogs within the insular areas. I feel that Rhiannon is one of her reflections on uh, in Wales. And then within the uh, Isle of Ireland, I find the Morrigan is very likely another analogous figure. Um, they're horse goddesses as such. 
And there's an importance there that many won't see at first within what's recorded down. Um, so one of the only mentions that we have of her from the Romans is where she is recorded down in Apuleius's work, The Golden Ass. Mm-hmm. And for those not familiar with The Golden Ass, it's uh, an interesting tale of a man's journey and he gets turned into an ass. <laughs> and then it's sort of his metamorphosis uh into uh back into being human again um and there's lots of magic in there and there's lots of different levels that one might take this uh take this story on but i feel that if you look at where epona figures into the story there's sort of a way that they're comparing her to another figure and I'm not going to go too much further because this uh, gets into too much material for the book. But essentially, she would have been an initiator into some deeper mysteries. Let's just say that within the Celtic traditions. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Well, so, uh, I, I, I want to uh, just ask one last brief question. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the pieces uh, um, that you directed us to to read is a recent one about you and uh, your husband going to Hawaii and connecting with a um, a tradition, a tattooing tradition, a sacred tattooing tradition that's being um, revitalized uh, in the uh, Native Hawaiian tradition. And I thought it was a really interesting piece because for, because here you are attempting to reinvigorate and revitalize and and uh, in your in your own life, but also with some of the concerns that you write about as well, um, some of some of your own ancestral uh, spiritual traditions, and you're connecting with this guy or these people in in. Why attempting to do that for their own um, tradition, and um, and one of the things that that struck me about the piece was the um, uh, the respect. You know, you were talking about authenticity before, and and authenticity in the realms that we've been discussing in this conversation it seems to me can be summarized as respect for what we know, what we don't know, what we can't know, and what we might be able to know. But respect is the key feature. I agree. Absolutely. And, and And in this case, to talk about bodily practices, it's about you, um, finding a way authentically to receive a tattoo on your body from this uh, uh, tattoo artist in that Hawaiian tradition, but not of a Hawaiian image, but one that you um, uh, describe as being from, from your own um, ancestral traditions. 
Yes. So um, I'm, wonder, I'm wondering if you have any final words to say about that, because I think it's a really interesting manifestation of just all the themes that we've been talking about um, in this conversation. Well, I would say, first off, that it was absolutely beautiful, the, the whole ceremony around the tattooing. You don't just go there to get your piece done. It's more about the entire experience. And Kali, he was the uh, gentleman who gave me the tattoo. Um, he is very knowledgeable about the indigenous Hawaiian traditions as such. And he's the first tattooing priest to, um, to be around in essentially a couple hundred years. He is uh, a generous individual and the whole, like I said, the whole situation was just absolutely breathtaking. I, I'm very grateful to have experienced it. But um, it, as far as kind of developing a way that I could receive a tattoo that was still authentic to my own ancestry, it it was, you know, kind of uh, something that was inspired in a way. I, I knew from various recordings that exist that the the vikings the the norse um they had tattooing traditions among them but it, it's kind of debatable how extensive they were and again we don't have a lot of recording of it but i went in with uh, an open heart and open mind to see what he would say on the matter if he would be open to the idea of tattooing me uh, my husband, who is uh, Hawaiian or part Hawaiian, he went and got a Hawaiian tattoo at the time. And so mine was just an, an add-on as such. And he said, yes, I'd, I'd be open to tattooing you. And I told him, you know, I have tablet weaving designs, which are essentially a, woving, a weaving tradition from Scandinavia and different parts of Europe that are really essentially just small bands, you know, something no thicker than about a, a rope or a belt. Mm -hmm. And they have geometric designs in there. They're very detailed, uh, amazing pieces of art. But I showed them to him and he really liked them. And he said, yeah, I, I could definitely do this. And so my vision was to have the world tree, uh, Yggdrasil, on my back, but done in a tablet weaving design all through it. And so it's very angular. One might not think that it actually looks like a tree per se, but to me, I, I know what it is and the tattoos for me. So that's all that matters, but it's beautiful. It's an amazing piece. And he honored the ancestors in the process. That's something that he does with all of his tattoos. So he asked them to be present. Um, he makes his own inks. It's mm -hmm. just everything is hand done and it's just absolutely beautiful. And like I said, it wasn't necessarily something that it was, who knows if it would have been done exactly that way 2000 years ago in the European continent, but I at least felt that there was some sense of authenticity there with the design itself something that my ancestors would have known. Well, I, I think, I mean, the, my, the point I make in uh, bringing this up, and I thank you for uh, the description, is simply that it's that seeking after authenticity 
um, all around that that um, I respect and I respect about your work. And and so um, looks like we've just about run out of time here. And and I'm going to thank you so much, yeah, thank Chris you. Bernard, for uh, speaking with us on the Mystical Positivist today. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Christopher Pernard, author of Celtic Mythology for Kids, Tales of Selkies, Giants, and the Sea. We spoke about his personal synthesis of a pagan practice based on the Norse and Celtic traditions and deities, and the transformative power of the allegories found in traditional tales. Next week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Ji Hung Padma, author of Field of Blessings, Ritual and Consciousness, and the Work of Buddhist Healers. Ji Hung believes that we are hungry for a direct experience of the sacred in this culture. We try to fill the void with technology and its quick fix of images and information. This leaves us hungry for true connectivity. We don't need more information. We need more appreciation. Gratitude opens the heart and gives our life meaning. It becomes a form of spiritual experience that gives us strength. Field of Blessings explores how meaning-making can be approached by deep examination of the stories of our lives, which bridge the gap between the inner world and the outer world, giving shape to our experience. How can these narratives be spoken, written, or embodied? Ritual is the story brought to life and a powerful vehicle for spiritual transformation, for reconnecting people with an embodied wholeness. Jihang Padma shows that the Chod, Medicine Buddha practices, and other Tibetan rituals are used by healers to evoke sacred energies, radical empathy, and to contact deep archetypical realms of the psyche. Join us for that show on Saturday, April 17th at 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussions of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.